Last week, when James began uh, the study of Thessalonians and covered the first chapter, one of the things that we saw and that he discussed was Paul expressing his thankfulness for the Christians there in Thessalonica. Of course, he talked about the beginning of the church there, as it's recorded in Acts. And Paul had to leave Thessalonica seemingly fairly quickly. He'd probably been there for some time, but sooner than Paul wanted to leave, he had to depart Thessalonica because of some of the persecution that arose. And so he continued on to Berea. And it wasn't much longer after that that he at some point sent Timothy back to the city and to check on these new Christians. And Timothy came back to Paul. He should be at Corinth at this point. And he had a very good report. He had some good things that Paul was thankful for. But Paul still needed and wanted to write back to these Christians who truly were still very young Christians in their faith. And yet, despite their youth or mature immaturity in the faith, having not been Christians for very long, there were some very commendable things about these Christians at Thessalonica. And so Paul opens his letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians, with a thanksgiving and expressing his thankfulness for them and for their faith. And he recalls their reception to the gospel and he recalls their zealous repentance, which was so great that even though they were new Christians, they had already become an example to other Christians. And so Paul spends the first chapter talking about how the Thessalonians had responded to the gospel when Paul came and preached it. Well, when you come to chapter 2 and the verses that we're going to look at this morning and Lord willing this evening, Paul kind of turns the table a little bit. And after calling to mind his remembrance for the Thessalonians, he now reminds the Thessalonians of his and his companions, Silvanus, who uh, many commentators think that's another name for Silas, and Timothy. And he reminds the Thessalonian Christians of their example and their uh, their motives and their manners and their methods when they were there in Thessalonica working and laboring and preaching the gospel. Now we might wonder why Paul does this. Why does Paul spend almost an entire chapter speaking about him and his companions and their attitudes and their work and what they had done while they were in Thessalonica? And we might look at that and feel like Paul's bragging a little bit or glory seeking, and that's not what he's doing at all. But there's probably a few reasons why Paul does this, why Paul writes this section about his example and what he and the other preachers with him had done while they were there. First of all, it was very possibly a defense. Again, when Paul was in Thessalonica, he had to leave hastily. I don't think that was all Paul's desire. Uh, Acts tells us that the brethren kind of made Paul leave. They were afraid for Paul and his safety as the persecution was becoming violent pretty quickly. They wanted Paul to leave for his safety. So Paul had left sooner than Paul wanted to leave. And since Paul had left, you can imagine that would be a possible scenario for others to either misperceive Paul's departure as a character flaw or for those who disliked Paul and wanted to smear his name and wanted to slander him, to latch onto that and to use that as a reason to say to these new young Christians, see, this man who you were following, he's not all that great. He's not all that faithful. This man left at the first sight of trouble. Why are you listening to what this man has to say? And so Paul may be providing a bit of a defense. Now, there's not much in 1 Thessalonians as there is in First and Second Corinthians that makes us or should make us think that the Thessalonians themselves are really starting to have a sour view of Paul. But 
Paul may have heard when Timothy came back that there were those, maybe still in the community, maybe still some of these Jewish individuals that had caused the problems who were slandering Paul in this way. And so Paul is providing a defense against that. But more importantly, I think Paul is also reminding the Thessalonians why they had begun to follow him and his message in the first place. In fact, he alluded to this. Well, this wasn't the main focus of chapter 1. He alluded to this in verse 5. When he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so even in that section where Paul was really talking about the Thessalonians and their response to the gospel, he says, you know what type of men that we were. And now that he's finished that section of talking about and remembering the Thessalonians, he's going to go back to what he initially says in verse 5 and build upon that a little bit further and remind them of his character why he's trustworthy and why the gospel is that of God's and that they can take confidence that what they had already started doing and were continuing to do, they should continue to do further. And then thirdly, Paul's going to expand on another point that he briefly mentioned in the opening. In verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul mentioned the Thessalonians' affliction. Now Paul had been chased out of town, so to speak, by persecutors But when Paul and Silvanus and Timothy left, the persecution didn't stop. Now, some of those Jews would continue to follow Paul around and plague Paul, but there were still those that stayed and maybe those that weren't Jews. Some of the Gentiles, some of the Romans that were there in the city continued to persecute the Thessalonian Christians. In fact, that's a theme throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is the persecution that these young Christians, these new Christians, were enduring. And so in this section, Paul also writes to encourage and to praise the Thessalonian Christians for their steadfastness and for their endurance. Even though they were new Christians and they are were already facing persecution, they so far had withstood that and remained faithful. And Paul encourages them to continue to do that. Now one thing about this passage, before we get into the verses, because Paul speaks in this passage about his work and his, uh, his message and his character, and Paul, of course, is referring to a time when as an apostle, he has gone into a new area to evangelize the area. Uh, this is an excellent resource for any who desire to preach, for those who desire to teach others, for those who have the ability and desire to lead congregations as teachers or preachers or elders. And so there's some wonderful leadership material in this passage. But this passage is not just about that. And this passage, you might read this passage and think, well, this is talking about what preachers should do or church leaders should do. But we must remember that while Paul is talking about what he had done as an apostle and a preacher, Paul's not writing just to say what he had done. He's doing this so that all the Christians there, all the Christians, would follow his example. He's not writing just for those that might become preachers there in Thessalonica. He's not writing for the church leaders in Thessalonica. He's writing to all of the Christians at the church there. And he's encouraging all of them to imitate his example and thus act rightly to obtain a Christian reputation even amidst a world that is so frequently hostile to Christianity. And because of that, this passage has things to teach each and every one of us who are Christians. So let's go ahead and dive in to the verses here. Uh, I think this morning I'm just going to plan on trying to get through the first eight verses, and Lord willing, we'll cover 
the final eight verses of this passage this evening. But verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul now is shifting focus and going back to when he came to the Thessalonians and he reminds them of some things and he says something that's a little bit of a strange sentence. He says, our coming to you was not in vain. Now that word vain there, it can have a couple of meanings. It can mean empty or fruitless or without effect or it can mean hollow and fallacious and false. So it's possible and it kind of sounds like maybe upon initial reading that when Paul says our coming was not in vain, he's saying it wasn't empty or it wasn't fruitless. That is, Paul's saying that his visit to Thessalonica had been productive. It wasn't fruitless. It had produced some good fruit. Again, since Paul had to flee Thessalonica, you can imagine some people accused his work there, or maybe even some of the Christians worried that the work that Paul had done was fruitless. He had to abandon the place to go on to somewhere else. And so they might think that Paul's time in Thessalonica was unsuccessful, but that's not the case at all. Paul had been successful and fruit had been born there. And that's possible when Paul says that his trip had not been in vain, that that's what he means. But I think contextually, more likely, when Paul says his trip or his coming to them was not in vain, he's not referring to the outcome of the work, but he's referring to his character involved in the work. And that fits the context of the remaining verses in this passage where Paul is, as we've already said, kind of giving a defense and a reminder of who he is and how he worked and the manner of life that he lived that the Thessalonians had witnessed and that they had seen. And this fits the passage a little bit better, I think. And so what Paul is simply saying is that his coming to Thessalonica was not vain or it was not false. It was not fallacious. Now, it was very common back in that day for there to be various philosophers and travelers and itinerant speakers that might travel around from place to place and give their philosophy and their traditions. And they frequently wanted to gather disciples to themselves. And the more disciples you could gather, you know, the greater your name might become. Some of these people were simply fraudsters that would take advantage of people that would listen to them and maybe give them money. And so perhaps some people might accuse Paul of these things. But Paul begins by stating his coming to Thessalonica was not like some of these itinerant philosophers or speakers that traveled about. His was not vain. It was not fallacious. But as he's going to demonstrate through the remaining passages, the remaining verses, his was wholesome and pure and godly. Now he says in the first clue that Paul gives that he was in fact a sincere preacher and his coming to them was sincere and pure was the fact that he was preaching the gospel while being persecuted. Like before coming to Thessalonica, he and his companions had been at Philippi where he says, you know what happened there. They had heard what had happened there. They perhaps heard it from Paul. They probably heard it from others that knew of the situation there. They witnessed the persecution that Paul suffered there at Thessalonica. But Paul says 
that they had suffered and been shamefully treated. Now, Paul doesn't just have a bruised ego because some people didn't like what he had to say or some people got angry at him. That concept of being shamefully treated is found a few other places in Scripture. For example, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 32, when Jesus is telling his disciples the fact that he's going about his future death, he says that he would be delivered to the Gentiles and he would be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. That shamefully treated, it's the same concept, the same Greek word as Paul has just used. And in Acts 14 and verse 5, when Paul was in the city of Iconium, Luke tells us that there was an attempt made by a mob of Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles working together, they hated Paul there so much, to mistreat him and his companions and to stone them. And so this idea of mistreating, of shamefully mistreating, it wasn't just maybe making fun of, it wasn't just contradicting. That typically went along with violence with trying to persecute someone to very severe extent. And so when Paul says that he had suffered, he was not exaggerating. He wasn't blowing things out of proportion. He had suffered a great deal in many places as he went from city to city preaching the gospel. Most recently before Thessalonica, of course, that was Philippi. And you can go read Acts 16 and read about some of the misfortune that Paul had there as far as the persecution. And so he and his companions had faced severe hardship. And yet, despite that hardship, instead of playing it safe, instead of being quiet for a while, instead of laying low and trying to let things pass over, they did the very thing that caused their hardship in the first place. They continued to preach the gospel. I have no doubt that Paul understood and knew that these Jews were going to continue to follow him, that they were going to continue to cause problems, that even if they didn't, there were others that would not like the message of the cross, that would not like what he was preaching. And so he knew hardship was around every corner. And yet, Paul says that they not only preached, but they declared the gospel boldly. And as in Philippi, they faced hardship and conflict in Thessalonica. But that hardship never deterred Paul and his companions from preaching the truth. And that's a great lesson for us. We may not face the type of persecution that Paul faced when he was at Philippi or when he was in Thessalonica. We may not have people that want to shamefully mistreat us and stone us. Or at least might not actually take the steps to do that even if they wanted to. But we will face persecution in various forms, and sometimes we may face severe persecution. You don't have to be stoned to face severe persecution when your livelihood is threatened. That's a pretty severe persecution. When your closest loved ones and friends forsake you and leave you and turn from loving you to hating you, that's some pretty severe persecution. And when we face those types of things, it's very tempting to be quiet. Maybe not give up on our faith, but at least be quiet about our faith. At least tone it down a little bit. But in the face of hardship and persecution, that's not a time to tuck in and quiet down. That's the whole goal of persecution, is to shut people up. That's not what we should do. On the contrary, like Paul, we should be bold. That's the answer to persecution, is boldness. And we respond, not out of stubbornness, not out of arrogance and hard-headedness, but out of love. Now, Paul, that's why he continued to go. Because Paul loved the Lord. And he loved men. 
And when we love the Lord and we love the souls of men, we will not let hardship deter us from what we ought to do. God's glory is far too important for us to be quiet. The souls of men are far too important for us to be quiet, simply because we might suffer for speaking the truth of God's gospel. And Paul never would be silenced. And that was right there proof, and really proof enough, of Paul's sincerity and love for God and love for the Christians at Thessalonica and really the Christians wherever he went. And so from here, Paul goes on to describe how he and his companions worked and preached. He shows further the proof that his coming to them was not vain or false. And he provides several descriptions of what they were not and what they were. And those are listed for us in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 through 8. So let's just read those verses. Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children." So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, we're gonna, I'm just going to truncate all those verses. We're going to look at them in two ways. We're going to find all the things Paul says that he, his companions, and their message and their work was not, and then the things that he and his companions and their message and work were. So, first of all, the things that Paul was not when he was with the Thessalonians, and this is true wherever Paul went, is Paul and his message were not erroneous. Paul preached the truth. Now, most people say that they have the truth. Many people believe that they had the truth. But Paul was an inspired apostle. He understood that what he was preaching was the truth of God. And he stood by that. Now, not everyone would accept that. Not everyone would believe that. But Paul knew And the Thessalonians should know that his message was the truth. There was no error. There was no falsehood in what he said. Now, some people today always have and do today, and there probably always will be people that deceive others, not intentionally, but they deceive others because they don't teach the truth and they are ignorant of it. They may not know that what they're teaching is false doctrine, but what they are teaching is false and it's not true. And so they deceive others. That's why we have to be so careful to study the Word of God, to know the Word of God, so that we follow the truth. And we should always have the desire, whether we're a preacher or a teacher in the congregation, whether we're a parent leading our home, or whether we're just talking to someone at work or in our neighborhood, or just living out the Christian life, we should always be able to say like Paul, my life is true. My life is not in accordance with error. My words are not erroneous but it's truth. But also, not only was Paul and his message not erroneous, it was not impure. Paul could honestly say that his motives and his behavior were pure. There was no secret or illicit or immoral desire that prompted Paul's efforts. Now, in the first century, and every century between then and this century, there have been those who used the gospel as a means of gain. Some people see preaching the gospel as a means of monetary gain. Some of these people realize, I think I think there are some that don't believe a word of what they say, 
but they realize they can um, take advantage of the good graces and of the kindness of others, and they use a pretense of preaching as a means of essentially robbing others. There are other people who may not be in it for the money, but maybe for the power or the prestige. Whatever it may be, there are people that speak and preach and teach the gospel or something like the gospel from impure motives. Again, many of these traveling philosophers probably did so out of greed or out of some immoral or illicit desire. But Paul could say, and again his behavior backed up what he said, that there was no impurity. And of course, that there should never be an impurity in ours. The reason that we teach, that we preach, that we share the gospel, that we live the way that we do, should always be for God's glorification and for obedience to the gospel, not for impure motives. Paul also was able to say, because he taught truth from pure motives, that his message was not deceptive. He did not deceive others. There was no reason to see deception in his words. He genuinely sought salvation of others and the glory of God. And another comment we might make here is not only did Paul not deceive because he taught the truth, but he tried to win people to the truth with nothing but the truth. Now the gospel is powerful, but you and I know this, and Paul knew this, not everybody wants the truth. Not everybody listens to the truth. And sometimes it can be frustrating when you preach the simple gospel that Paul did. Remember Paul told the Corinthians that he determined in Corinth to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that message resonates with some people and convicts some people and converts them. But there are many others it does not. And if we become numbers chasers or men pleasers or self-seeking gratification uh, type of individuals, we may be tempted to convert others through other means. Maybe we realize, you know, this message isn't converting masses of people. So let's change the message a bit. Or let's kind of try and trick people into getting to church or trick people into slowly seeing the gospel. There's no need for deception when it comes to preaching the gospel. Paul didn't use gimmicks, he didn't use philosophy, he didn't use tricks. He just used the gospel. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now again, that's not going to convert everybody. But converting people through trickery and deception doesn't convert them either. And so like Paul, we need to rely on the simplicity and the power of the gospel. But also, there's a few things Paul says that we'll kind of group into one here. Paul was able to say that he was not there to please men. That was not his goal. And because of that, he could not be accused of flattery and flattering the people he spoke to. And he was not there and had not been seeking glory from other individuals. Now, some people love other people. Some people love the praise of other people. But Paul loved souls, not applause. And thus he was committed to the truth. Even when the truth upset people or angered people, maybe even upset mobs so much that they wanted to beat him or kill him, he still preached the truth. Now Paul didn't upset people because he liked to. I don't think Paul was the type of individual that just wanted to fight people or get into arguments. He didn't enjoy seeing people get angry at the truth, but he loved their souls too much to spare their feelings by not teaching the truth. Now, some people are not committed to that. There are some people that teach and preach 
because it is a means of gaining recognition and praise. There have always been people that preferred the praise of men over the praise of God. John tells us there were Pharisees that recognized Jesus was the Messiah, but they wouldn't confess Him because they loved the praise of men. And that's just as possible today. And when people are seeking to please men so that they can be praised, they'll give in to things like flattery, buttering people up to give them what they want so they can keep their job or get a bigger paycheck or gain some element of power over them. They may even compromise the message if people don't like being rebuked for a sin. Well, just don't rebuke them for the sin. And then they'll probably give you some glory and some praise and they'll like you. Well, that wasn't Paul's way. See, the adulterer isn't pleased to be rebuked for his immorality. And the drunkard isn't pleased to have the shame of his drunkenness exposed. And the idolater isn't pleased to be told that he must give up his idol. But the purpose of the gospel is not to please people. It's to save them. And it's not easy. And I'm not saying we should just beat people up. Paul's going to talk about how he was gentle and loving. There's a right way to teach. But there's also always the fact that we must be firm in the truth. We can never simply seek to please people and flatter them. We must be willing to stick to the truth of the gospel. Paul says he was not greedy. This goes along with the lines of impure motives. And maybe this is something some had tried to accuse Paul of. But Paul reiterates they did not preach from greed. Again, from the early years of the church until now, there have been those who have preached from the motivation of greed. They've seen preaching as a means of swindling others. And sad as it may be, there are those who preach for no other reason than a means of gain. Now, when it comes to supporting preachers, it's good and right for the church to support preachers and to support those who labor in the Word. That's scriptural. There are other passages that show that. But any true disciple of Christ who is a preacher and who preaches will preach and teach before he is supported by a church for doing so. And he will continue to preach and teach to the greatest of his ability, even if he cannot be supported. There were times when Paul accepted support and was supported. There were times when he would not accept support. And there were reasons for those. And Paul's going to talk about some of that even concerning the Thessalonians. But one thing you could not accuse Paul of was preaching just for the money. Even if a person preaches the truth, but they only do it so long as they're getting paid or getting something out of it, that's a problem. And Paul was never like that. But also Paul says he was not a burden. Paul mentions that as an apostle, he could have made demands of the Thessalonians. But what were these demands that he says he could have made? It might refer to the monetary support. He's going to talk about his work and labor so that he could support himself in verse 9. So maybe he's mentioning that. Maybe that's what he means by the fact that he didn't make demands. He didn't demand that these Christians support him financially. But I think in in this verse, before Paul starts to transition to his own work and labor that this is speaking about the way he used his authority. Now, as an apostle, he could certainly wield authority. And yet, instead of doing so, he led the Thessalonian Christians gently. This doesn't mean he didn't teach right from wrong, or that he was permissive or tolerant of sin, but it does mean he didn't abuse authority and simply demand obedience. Paul labored among them so as to foster obedience to Christ through serving and working with them. And that's a mark of a great leader. Now, let's look at some things that Paul says he and his methods were. First of all, they were approved and entrusted by God. 
Now Paul had been selected by God to be an apostle of the Lord. And therefore God had entrusted him with the great message of the gospel. You and I will not be and cannot be apostles. And so we are not entrusted and approved in the exact same way as Paul was. And yet we can still ensure that what we speak is approved by God. How do we do that? By speaking the scriptures. By speaking simply what the scriptures teach, we can ensure that our message is likewise approved by God. And while we may not have been specifically appointed as apostles, all Christians are entrusted with the responsibility of sharing the gospel with the world. I've always thought that's an interesting idea, that the Almighty God of the universe, our Creator, who has formed this great plan that He has worked out through the ages for man's salvation, You know how that message gets out about what he's done? He has entrusted you with it. Almighty God has placed his trust in you as his child to share that message and to live that message for others. And me and all of us here that are Christians. What an awesome responsibility that is. Also, Paul says that his aim was to please God. Contrary to pleasing men... Paul's motive was to please God. Well, you and I, it's not that we should just be seeking to displease men, but we cannot gauge our success on how well others are pleased with us. Now, hopefully, if they are spiritually minded people and we're pleasing God, then we will please them also. But pleasing men is not the way that we gauge whether we are spiritually successful or not. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said to the Corinthians, it is a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So we don't judge ourselves by how well others are pleased with us. We don't even judge ourselves by how well I'm pleased with myself. Paul says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul says, well, there we go. Galatians 1 verse 10 Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul did not seek to please men, but God. Now in Galatians and Thessalonians, that may have a, a special meaning. Because in both of those letters, there is the theme of persecution that arises. There's two reasons, at least, that we might seek to please men. One, we might seek to please men because, like we've already mentioned, we're glory seekers. We like their praise and applause and all of those things. Or we may want to please men because we want to avoid their anger and their displeasure and their persecution. And that's a very tempting thing to do, to please others, so that we don't have to face their anger. But Paul never compromised the truth to please others, either to control them or to be spared of their displeasure. When we displease men with the truth, they may persecute us. But far better to be persecuted by man and pleasing to God than to be safe from man and displeasing to God. Well, Paul also says that he was gentle. Instead of wielding his authority oppressively, Paul was gentle with the Thessalonian Christians. And if anyone doubted Paul's motives, they only needed to remember how he behaved and how he acted when he was with them. He was caring and affectionate. And to the honest person, it must have been clear that he cared for them a great deal. Now, there's something here. It depends on the translation that you're using. Most translations translate that, that I was gentle among you. There are a few translations that translate that I was like an infant or I was like a little child with you. I don't have time uh, to go through that. That's one of those situations. There is a textual variant. 
And there's an interesting reason why. The Greek letters, uh, the Greek words are one letter different. And so commentators and scholars debate whether the, uh, the original text was I was like an infant or I was like a child. Uh, if you would like to learn more about that or have questions about that, ask me afterwards. It's not really all that pertinent to the lesson itself. And so we can discuss that later if you would like to. But for time's sake, let's go ahead and move on to Paul's next description. Not only was he gentle or like an infant, and that really those go together, the same, they're similar ideas. But he also says he was like a mother. Now this is kind of a shocking metaphor in a sense because we don't typically think of a man saying, well, uh, the way I led you was like a nursing mother. That seems like a strange analogy. And yet, it's actually a very beautiful analogy, and there's things to learn here. And one of the interesting things about this is in that time and in that culture, I'm sure not everyone could do this because a lot of people couldn't afford it, but it was pretty common for families to, instead of having the mother, the actual mother, nurse the child, they would frequently hire wet nurses to feed their infants. And now these wet nurses became more than just nurses or or. Uh, for the feeding of the baby, they frequently became tutors or teachers. They were generally a big part of the child's life, even as they continued to grow. And they were known for their care and their tenderness. But at the end of the day, they were still a hired hand. And so when Paul says this, that he's like a nursing mother, he's saying he's not like a hired servant or a hired hand as tender and caring as they may be, but like a mother. A genuine mother who loves and cares for and provides for her own children. Church leaders can learn from the role and the work of mothers. And as mothers tenderly and sacrificially care for the needs of their children, so should leaders care for the children of God. And then Paul says that he was essentially affectionate and friendly when he speaks about desiring to give themselves uh, to the to the Thessalonians and how close they were. On verse 8, Paul exclaims that his care for the Thessalonians had far surpassed mere duty. He truly befriended them, and they became beloved and dear to Paul. Now maybe there was just something special between the Thessalonians and Paul. Maybe it's as we say, something just clicked between the two. But I also think it's likely that Paul developed these close relationships because he was willing to. I think he developed these, situ- these relationships and these feelings everywhere he went. You see, Paul, unlike the itinerant philosophers and speakers, unlike the Jewish rabbis and scribes and leaders, unlike many business leaders, unlike many religious leaders and even church leaders today, Paul was not aloof and distant from the people he worked with. He didn't view himself as the apostle over all of the ordinary Christians. He was right there in the midst of them. He worked with them. He labored with them. He befriended them. He gave himself not only to the work itself, but he gave himself to the people. And that is a great leader. And for those of us that are leaders, preachers, teachers, elders, that's a lesson for us to emulate. To not be distant from the people, to not let ourselves be puffed up in our own mind and view ourselves as aloof, but to view ourselves as what we are, part of the flock. Now yes, you know, elders are called shepherds. 
And they have a maturity that allows them to guide the flock. But one of the ironic things about a shepherd in the church is they're also a sheep. We're all part of the flock of God. We're with the people, not distant from them. And how much good can be accomplished when the church operates on this level? Again, these were Christians that were brand new Christians. Where did they get this strength? Well, surely some of it was from themselves and their character and their faith. But I can't imagine how much growth was possible in just the short time that Paul was with them because he didn't approach them as some distant superior teacher, but as a beloved friend. He looked at them like family. He loved them like family. He served them like family. And so in giving himself to the people, he served them greatly and he developed great friendships with these people. Friendships which, by the way, would last and will last into eternity. It's a beautiful picture and one that I hope that we will always work on as leaders and as Christians in this congregation. And so these are what Paul says his life, his ministry was and was not. And as we look at this list, I think that we see really Christian conduct. Hopefully we can look at our lives and say that they are not an error, that they're not impure or deceptive. Our goal is not to please people and men or to seek glory. We're not greedy or immoral. We're not burdensome and oppressive. Hopefully we can say that our lives and our words are in accordance with God's word. Thus they're approved by God. We're fulfilling our responsibility that God is entrusted with. Each day our goal is to please the Father. And as we do so, and as we interact with others, yes, we are firm and we hold to the truth. And we aren't compromising, we're bold. But in that we are still gentle. We're still familial. We're like a mother who cares and sacrifices. We're affectionate. We're friendly. I hope that all of us can learn from Paul's example, as the Thessalonians were supposed to, and become these types of Christians and people. But we'll end our study there for this morning. The Lord willing, tonight we'll pick up in verse 9 and finish out uh, the rest of the passage through verse 16. So I hope that you can come back and be a part of that study also. As we draw the lesson to a close, though, we have an opportunity to extend the gospel invitation. Perhaps there's someone here who's not a Christian. You can change that today. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you need to repent of your sins, confess Him as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And it would be our great joy and honor to help you with that this day and to welcome you into the family of Christ. Or if there's a Christian here who desires the prayers of the church, then we stand ready and willing to assist you with your request and to pray with you and for you, whatever your need might be. So if there be one in need, please come while we stand and while we sing.